you're never going to be 100% prepared, which is a parallel to, I feel, entrepreneurship and being a founder is that everything you do, you're going to question it and everything's not going to be perfect and you just have to be okay with that and just do it and take the step forward. You never know what you're going to be good at or what's going to click until you try it. Trying all kinds of different things, like trying new hobbies, uh, speaking to new people. I feel like you're only ever going to be grateful. We need to give ourselves more credit when it comes to the, the things that might happen and the things we're capable of. Welcome to the Generation Hustle Podcast, the show that explores the world of business, entrepreneurship, and culture all centered around the millennial. I'm your co-host, Sherison, alongside my good friend, Amin, and this week, we're talking about your digital legacy. Episode 66 is with Micah Isagawa, co-founder and CEO at Webacy. Webacy helps protect your digital legacy by allowing you to decide what you want to do with your digital life after you die. This includes your social media accounts, blockchain-based assets, cryptocurrencies, and other assets. Some of this involves deletion or memorialization of accounts, posting final or sequenced content, and transferring crypto or business accounts to your inner circle. Micah is a former professional acrobat and performer for the Cirque du Soleil brand of shows. She is also a Stanford 20 alumnus with a special concentration in symbolic systems, a program which combines the study of human-computer interaction, software engineering, linguistics, and philosophy. Micah was most recently a cybersecurity engineer for Microsoft, while Micah and Webacy have been recently recognized as a member of the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. So we sit down with Micah to discuss her early days with Cirque du Soleil and how she became an entrepreneur. She details how she battles imposter syndrome, cultural influences in her life, including anime, and how Webacy is securing digital assets for the world of tomorrow. This is a fun chat that we hope you enjoy. Yeah, thank you so much, Micah, for coming on the podcast today. You have a very unique journey, uh, one that came from, you know, coming from Cirque du Soleil to entrepreneurship and a bunch of other things that come along that story as well. So, you know, thanks again for coming on the show and, uh, you know, happy to, you know, hear your story today. Thanks for having me. I've been a fan of the show um, quite recently, but I've actually kind of, you know, binge listened to a few of the episodes. Oh, sweet. I really like it. That's awesome. Thank you so much. So, you know, the first thing I'd love to understand is, you know, Micah, the person, not the entrepreneur. So let's kind of understand your story in your early days. So, you know, I found it pretty interesting how, you know, you've had several different careers outside of, you know, the focus of what you're doing now at Webacy. Um, and the first thing that came to mind was you were an acrobat at Cirque du Soleil. So, you know, walk us through that opportunity, how it came about and what interested you about that? Yeah, I feel like Cirque du Soleil was kind of a, a serendipitous dream come true kind of journey that I went on. Um, so circus acrobatics in general, I was never a, a gymnast. I never did like gymnastics or like things like that when I was younger, but I grew up in Minnesota and they had one of the largest youth circuses in the country. It was called Circus Juventus, um, strangely in Minnesota. But uh, I started going there. I started with a summer camp one week in the summer and then every year I'd get more into it. And so it was my main hobby after school. So after school, I'd go there and train for four or five hours a night and then do my homework. And that was my entire high school time. So uh, it was a hobby growing up and Cirque du Soleil would come to town. And the first time I saw the show, I was absolutely blown away. Just like I feel like everyone sees the show and is amazed by it. But it was never a goal of mine, like a strict goal that I would try to be working towards. But it was always a dream that maybe someday, you know, I'd perform in Cirque du Soleil, but never had like put much thought into it. And then I actually graduated high school and went to college. Uh, and then one of my old circus coaches reached out to me uh, about an opportunity, right? And so I had a great opportunity to work for a show called uh, Absinthe by a company called Spiegel World, which is different from Cirque du Soleil, but also a very excellent circus acrobatics company. If you've ever been to Las Vegas, um, Absinthe is one of the best shows on the Strip. It's in front of Caesars Palace. But I worked for them, but they had copied the show to send to Australia. And so I did the Australian tour, did a couple different cities there. Uh, and that's where I met uh, Cirque du Soleil's Totem. The, they happened to be in the same cities that we were. And so we would see the other show and they were actually, their next stop was Japan uh, and they were looking for a female acrobat and they were going to Japan. I happen to be half Japanese. I have family there. I speak Japanese. And so it was, um, it was kind of like a stars aligning moment where they had this opening and I was available. And so that is how I got uh, the job at Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. One of the things I think a lot of us talk about is increasing your surface area to opportunity. And I feel like you were very open to kind of new opportunities. So, you know, before we get to how that experience at Cirque du, Soleil, at Cirque du Soleil taught you and gave you some skills, you know, talk to us about, you know, increasing surface area for opportunity and maybe your thought process around that. 
Yeah, I I kind of feel like you never know what you're going to be good at or what's going to click until you try it, right? And so like trying all kinds of different things, like trying new hobbies, uh, speaking to new people, I feel like you're only ever going to be grateful that you had a new experience or maybe nothing happened at all. But it's it's worth putting yourself out there and like trying new things because all of these things that have happened to me have been because, you know, I gave it a chance or I was like, you know, brave enough to go talk to someone or, you know, shared my interest in, in an opportunity, right? And so... Um, I think we we need to give ourselves more credit when it comes to the the things that might happen and the things we're capable of. Yeah, a lot of the things are sometimes not in our control and some things just kind of reach out to us and, you know, you took that opportunity. So what did the experience actually teach you? You mentioned, you know, obviously breaking the mold in terms of talking to individuals and kind of exploring those options. But beyond that, how does how's those experiences translated into you building a business? Yeah, I think... Um, I like to make this joke that circus acrobatics has a lot of, um, you know, uh, applicable skills to being an entrepreneur and people laugh and, you know, I am joking, but part of it's actually very true. So it's like being part of Cirque and, you know, traveling the world. And, you know, this is my first time kind of outside of high school that I had left home. And then suddenly I was traveling the world alone with my coworkers that are all best in class at what they do. And I didn't have any like formal training. A lot of these people came from Olympic backgrounds or went to circus college and were absolutely so good at what they did. And I felt a little bit of that um, imposter syndrome very early on. Um, but this, the, the two and a half years I spent on the road were probably some of the biggest like character development moments of my life. So I w- it was between 17, uh, 17, 18 is when I started. Um, and then when I went back to school, it was around 21 um, or 20. And um, I learned everything from how to get along with different kinds of people, right, to actually just building self-confidence, uh, being able to speak up for yourself, to advocate for your own needs. Because, you know, at 18, 19, uh, you, you kind of don't really have those great skills yet. And so that was um, those those were big lessons. But I was very lucky that the people I worked with were super supportive Um it turned into a family for me and I was one of the younger ones. And so I kind of felt like, um, like I had a lot of uh, friends and adults around me that could help me grow. Yeah. And I think that's so important. Like maybe what I can kind of relate that to is my experience going off to university and kind of being an independent and kind of going through that four years of experience and learning and obviously making a lot of mistakes at the same time uh, and just being around individuals. But I, I guess like you being around adults also kind of maybe accelerated that maybe, you know, give you some wisdom and all those other kind of things. Um, So that's pretty cool. One of the things I'd love to understand is, you know, how do you tackle fear? Because I think you mentioned imposter syndrome and intimidation and stuff like that, especially as a young 18, 17 year old going across the world as an independent, just on your own. How did you tackle that fear and kind of go into that situation and develop that confidence over time? And even when you're kind of going to those shows and, you know, when all the lights are on you, it must be like really scary for, I guess most people, it's pretty scary. Yeah, I think fear is something that we all have in all kinds of different situations, right? And it's one of those things that like either it gets to you and then you don't do something or you overcome it and then you do do something and it either goes well or it doesn't. But um, I think more than fear for me, it was more um, like nervousness, uh, excitement, of course, mixed with the, the fear of nervousness of the whole experience, right? And not only just with Cirque, Cirque is a great example because every time I got on stage, even at the end of the two years that I was working, it was there's still that butterflies and the nervousness. And I think that's part of the excitement of being a performer and, you know, putting yourself out there, right? Um, but when it comes to those first couple days, I think I realized that I did the best when I felt uh, like I had trained to the best of my ability, right? Being prepared. And you're never going to be 100% prepared, which is a parallel to, I feel, entrepreneurship and being a founder is that um, everything you do, you're going to question it and everything's not going to be perfect. And you just have to be okay with that and just do it and take the step forward. And that was the same with Cirque. Like even, like, I never felt like I was ever going to be like, perfectly prepared for the moment to step on stage. But I think any athlete or any performer can understand this feeling that you just have to surrender to the reality that this is what you have to do and it, it goes well or it doesn't. And that's just kind of a function of how well you trained, um, your, your own confidence, your your expectations of yourself. And um, it's kind of a beautiful thing. I think we all go through it at some point in our lives. Yeah. And yeah, fear is just a component of, I guess, human nature uh, in terms of going into the unknown. Um, so I feel like, you know, you've obviously translated that really well and taking experience and now using that experience to understand, you know, yeah, it might be unknown, but you know, there's probably a solution or framework I can figure out uh, how this is going to kind of maybe what the outcome might be, right? So 
Um, you know, a lot of individuals, especially younger now, are also going into this area of side hustle. So um, I think it's becoming increasingly popular. And I've noticed you've worked on several kind of projects that highlight many of your interests, like reading, journaling and stuff like that as well. Um, so, you know, maybe talk to us about the importance of maybe having a side hustle, especially nowadays, um, and how that experience has also strengthened your skill as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I think having a side hustle for me, it was mostly to fulfill these like hobbies and interests that I felt like I couldn't fully pursue because I was maybe in school or doing a full-time job. Um, but it allowed me to express my creativity and put my mind on something that brought me joy. Uh, not that my job in school didn't bring me joy, but it's just something different, you know? Um, I think the importance of a hobby, it, it gives user like it gives people a way to express different parts of themselves that they might not otherwise be able to express, right? And it, it sometimes it's private, also. And hobbies, we've heard all kinds of success stories about hobbies turning into full time jobs. But I think hobbies give you a way to play. Um, like adults need to play, and hobbies give you that uh, ability to fail. It gives you the space to uh, succeed or fail because it's just a it's just a hobby, right? It's not your your self worth when it comes to your career or your relationships. So. Um, I love doing different kinds of hobbies because I'm interested in so many things. So, you know, music, writing, um, art, and any kind of external thing that might not necessarily make me money to live every day, but it's also just um, humans need a creative outlet. And so those are where my hobbies come from, at least. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that's maybe hotly debated is the idea of passion and going after your passions. So when you're kind of thinking about these side hustles, did you kind of see it as an outlet of, you know, developing skill sets that maybe come into kind of the future lens of who you become as an entrepreneur? Or is it more just, you know, it's an outlet for me to be creative and just be Micah? Is it because I find it a lot of times interesting, a lot you know, sometimes say I, I'm going for my passion to become do X, Y, Z and then become an entrepreneur afterwards. But a lot of times those critical skill sets within those hobbies don't resonate to what you're kind of Goal, your goal is right so what are your thoughts on that totally I think you know approaching a hobby to to build skill is I think a really smart way to learn new things and to build new new skills for me personally I was doing it just to pursue my own interests but thinking back or like looking back to all the skills I gained like um like you know starting a project from start to finish putting things out there talking to people, collaboration, all of these different things, networking through these hobbies have completely translated to the business I'm running now. Um, and I think you, you never know what you're going to come, what's going to come from a hobby, right? Like a hobby, you could become a viral musician if you post a song that you like. All of these things are just, again, like putting yourself out there, just like seeing what'll come in the world. You never know what's going to happen, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it's there's this kind of two paths with hobbies, right? You either do it because you you really love it and you want to turn it into something that can support you and sustain you, or you just do it because you are interested and you want to. And those things can also go together. Yeah, and uh, maybe an extension of that, or maybe even a tangent, is what role has culture played in your kind of development in terms of thought process and how do you kind of perceive things? Because um, you know, you have a diverse background, I have a diverse background, you know, uh, they all obviously say Asian backgrounds have certain <laughs> kind of distinctions, our parents kind of bring us up a certain way. Um, so uh, what was your kind of like upbringing in that sense? And how's that influence uh, you today? I love the word culture. And I'm really actually glad that you brought this up because um, I think culture, you know, there's ethnic culture, then there's generational culture, you know, they're hearing about Gen Z and all of that. And I'm not sure where I fit because I'm a 96 baby, but we can talk about that later. Um, so for my like, ethnic background, my, I'm half Japanese. So I was actually born and raised in Tokyo. So Japanese is my first language, although I've been living in the States for so long that I think maybe English is better at this point. Um, but the especially when it comes to Asian cultures, there's definitely a dichotomy when you hear about um, individualism versus collectivism and the difference there between the two cultures. And that's definitely come up both in my personal life and also when it comes to how I approach work. Um, you also hear about the, the work values, about, you know, different cultures. And in Japan in particular, there's a little bit of a stigma about, you know, overwork and there's the, the Japanese businessman kind of, you know, whole concept that's been studied. Um, but I think that it's actually just instilled a little bit of more discipline in me and kind of a, a different approach to how I perceive what work is. Uh, maybe it's not like the healthiest, but also being an American, I've kind of learned um, the importance of work-life balance, mental health, um, 
approaching things that you want to do. <laughs> it's not just about the career. Um, I'm kind of rambling about this because there's so many topics in culture that you could touch on. Um, but yeah, I think there's also an aesthetic when it comes to like Asian culture in general, which kind of comes into a little bit of the perfectionism, but something like beauty and there's kinds of Japanese words that don't translate well to English, but those kinds of things that I've take care to try to uh, try to approach and integrate in my daily life, whether it's seen or not, it's it's there. Yeah. And I think lived experiences uh, obviously influence who you are as a person today. So you know, your, your experience growing up in Tokyo, your experiences growing up in America. You know, I had a friend that who used to be an engineer uh, in Japan. And when he came over to Canada, um, with the startup that we were working at, um, this guy would just be putting in like 12 hours, no problem. And we would be looking at him like, dude, like, aren't you like overworking yourself? He's like, no, I'm used to this. Like, this is normal for me. And all of us are just staring at him as like, almost like intimidated in the sense that, you know, maybe the engineering manager will say, this guy's favorite and stuff like that. He's just like, no, I'm just used to this at this point, because that's like kind of the lifestyle I chose working in Japan at that moment in time. But uh, as uh, the year went by, he he had a child. And that's when he started realizing, like, that's not the lifestyle I can live anymore. And so that's when he started shifting his mindset to maybe the more westernized kind of culture and how we perceive work-life balance and stuff like that and taking advantage of maybe those benefits and you started seeing go from 12 to 11 to 10 to 8 um and kind of taking advantage of that so i love how you've kind of you know uh, kind of basically connected both cultures in a way that's made you unique to yourself in the, that sense um you know, super, super side uh, thing. Do you, do you, do you like anime and maybe uh, has that, you know, culture from that standpoint, maybe uh, influenced you in any way or, cause I, I'm a huge anime guy. So I, I love to understand cause you're also from Japan. So uh, I'd love to understand that. Yeah. I'm like a huge closeted anime nerd. Um, I've seen so many things and I think people are surprised cause also again, like the anime culture in America sometimes has a negative stigma around it. Yeah. Like it's nerdy or weeby or whatever, the, the horrible terms that people get called. Yeah. Um, but I'm a huge fan. I, and um, I, I love talking about it with people when they are brave enough to share. Cause I know they can be perceived poorly here. Um, but yeah, I'm super big fan. Yeah. What's uh, what's your favorite uh, show right now? Uh, right now I've been watching, um, Demon Slayer, but that's just cause it's okay. popular. Yeah. 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 What about no, you? I, I've finished season two. I was kind of disappointed that it was only 13 episodes long. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I was just like, I thought it was going to be another 24, but whatever it's, uh, it is what it is. And trying to finish off Attack and Titan, uh, soon. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean the, the animation quality is so good on these shows that I, I'm not surprised that they have to create less, but I don't know if that's a budget issue or a timing thing. Yeah. And you know what? I, I always kind of maybe, again, so, such a tangent here from the normal discussion that we we're having. But, you know, I've always found like anime has a deeper kind of, uh, you know, meaning in terms of it's just not animation. A lot of people just think it's just a cartoon and, um, you know, but there's a lot of meaning. If you look at examples of maybe Naruto and the character development and those uh, in that story or Attack on Titan or even Demon Slayer, there's a lot of character development. And I feel like a lot of individuals personally relate to that. Um, and that's kind of how they kind of perceive themselves and maybe, you know, utilize that again to grow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people who get it really get it. And people who don't just don't understand But I've <laughs> cried more watching anime than I've mm. cried during anything. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of strange. I've also, yeah, I've also transitioned my uh, wife into uh, more of an anime fan. She always thought it was kind of weird, too. And then I, I think uh, she started watching Death Note, uh, the first kind of uh, anime to watch. It was on Netflix, so it's easy. And uh, she's like, wow, this is such a mind fuck. Like, what's going on? And it's just like, wow, okay. Now she's addicted to a lot of shows. So it's uh, good to see that transition. Good, you've uh, done yeah, well for the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, she she started collecting Funko Pops as well. So it's a pretty cool transition to see. Um, so yeah, let's get back into the conversation. Um you know, goal setting is important for anyone. And, you know, I feel like you have a unique perspective in terms of how you kind of, you know, as an entrepreneur, set your goals, because, you know, there's a lot of things that go on along in an entrepreneur's day that, you know, change and priority is important for an entrepreneur. So how do you think, uh, what, what do you think about, you know, tasks and, you know, that maybe not be truly accomplished, and maybe tell us about a time where, you've shifted your approach in terms of setting your goals uh, from, you know, just task-based to priority-based. 
Totally. Yeah. I, so goal setting has been something that I've been kind of practicing um, or like working on, I guess, for a couple different years, even before I started my company. And it all started actually when I was at Cirque because I felt like I was spending a lot of time working physically, like working out physically um, and wasn't really uh, growing in my, in my brain and my like mm-hmm. other things that I wanted to do. Um, and so I started setting goals for myself about um, I started doing these like 30 day challenges, but setting one for each month of the year. So I did this for three or four years consecutively. Um, and I would set them at the beginning of the year. I'd be like, in January, I'm going to do a vegan month. And then February, I'm going to drink three liters of water every single day. You know, all of these different things from physical fitness goals to language goals, to like studying Japanese or um, all these different other goals that you could set during these 30-day challenges. And I did that for a long time. And it was actually great. Um, but then the last two years, I think with going back to school and then starting full-time job at Microsoft and then now being a founder, um, I found that some of the goals that I had set in the beginning of the year, I was doing just to say that I did it because I didn't want to be held accountable for not like reaching these yeah. goals because I had shared them all publicly, right? Uh, so I one month, it was a three-minute handstand every day. And I what I want to train to increase my handstand like abilities, but doing a three-minute handstand every day by itself, I, at some point, I just did, did that one, th- like the three-minute practice during the day and did nothing else. And that was not the mm. point of it, right? It was to improve the handstand and nothing ever improved. Um, and so it was actually this year that I stopped doing the 30, uh, the 30 day goals every Mm -hmm. month and realized that maybe I should pick goals that are more, um, in line with the goal, uh, with the skills I'm trying to build. So this year I made just a list of, okay, what are the skills I want to do and what are the goals to achieve them? So for example, I want to be a better rock climber. So I'm going to learn how to lead climb this year and I give myself the year to do it. So if there's gaps in my schedule, I can kind of fill it in. And I think that's going to be a better, I mean, I'll let you know at the end of the year how it goes. Um, But I think that'll be a better, more directed um, way to achieve my goals rather than this kind of mindless, like do something for 30 days and then do the next thing. And that has translated to my work as an entrepreneur as well, very, very well. Um, And as an entrepreneur, I think especially as a CEO, uh, you're balancing immediate short-term goals to reach like your next week launch or whatever. And then these long-term goals of I actually have to think like three years ahead, where does the company like, where do I want the company to be and how do I get there, right? And so every day it's zooming in, zooming out, having those weekly meetings with my co-founder about how are we are we on track to reach mm-hmm. these things? Are these three-year goals even making sense? So in that realm, I'm definitely still learning because I'm very good at short-term execution, but it's harder for me to I like think the long term, exactly. Yeah. So I think we, we all have our... Um, our strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, and I, I I truly agree with you. I struggle with like the long term thing. I'm starting to think about it a lot more actively. But mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the time, I was just so used to just short term execution. But are those kind of core activities that I'm doing in the short term really adding up, compounding to that long term goal? So you know, I came across a blog recently. Um, I'm pretty sure you've heard of Sahil Bloom. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I think yeah, a lot of indiv- and he he had his uh, this framework around goal setting where you know, uh, it's around your personal self, your health, and then your career. So kind of like the three core areas of like, what makes you you. Um, And then he sets one big audacious goal for each of those three categories. And then he kind of breaks them down into kind of like mid level, maybe quarterly goals of how to achieve almost like an OKR process, I would say, uh, in that sense. And then he kind of looks at it in a nearsighted way of like, you know, those short term executions and uh, am I kind of achieving those specific steps? And uh, that's kind of what I've implemented in the near term. And I feel like it's definitely cleared my mind in the sense where I felt like I was going after too many things at the same time. And although I saw it as being productive, it wasn't really productive because, you know, I'm, I'm learning in so many different ways and it's just not kind of really critical in terms of honing your skills. So I think that's an important distinction that you make is just kind of you know, how you were before and then how you made that transition now to really focus. Um, to that point, do you feel like younger generations are putting too much pressures on themselves in terms of trying to accomplish way too much, way too fast? Because uh, all I see nowadays is like, oh, the 20 year old uh, billionaire or whatever it is, or this kid had just created the coolest NFT project, or they raised a hundred million dollars. And a lot of us feel bad or feel, uh, get into that imposter syndrome or want to feel like, you know, we accomplished the same thing. So um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know if it's just the younger generation. I feel like every generation kind of um, 
compares themselves to other people their age. Although I have to say I'm blown away by the generation like right under me. Um, I guess they're called Gen Z, but they're doing some incredible things. And of course, it makes me feel like, wow, uh, I'm getting old, first of all. And like second, they're absolutely amazing. But I think there's a difference between um, there's the younger generation who um, are achieving these spectacular things that get like highlighted. They're in the media. You see them. And then there's like the younger generation that I actually know. And they're they're very well-rounded. Um, they are, of course, young. So they have some like confidence to build and things to learn. But they're, they really like like to focus on the hobbies that they have. They're very smart. They're very curious. And they're very balanced when it comes to like understanding that they need time to rest and they uh, they need time for their friends and their hobbies. And that's something that I didn't really have growing up. Right. Like I was always kind of like, go, go, go. Um, and back to this point, like I know I'm not part of the younger generation now, but I remember when I was a freshman uh, first coming to Stanford and I was sitting in the auditorium with all of the other freshmen. And one of the introductory speeches by the faculty was something about talking about all the incredible people in our class, you know, the people sitting around us. And they were mentioning things like this one student discovered this new like cancer curing enzyme, or like this student started a nonprofit that has reached like a million people in this other continent. And I was sitting there like, wow, I've done nothing close to what these students are doing. I don't feel like I deserve to be here. But then every other student next to me felt the same way. We were all turning to each other. Like, who are these kids? Where are they? They're incredible. It's great to be part of this class. But also it's like, what what does that say to the kids that are like still there and still at Stanford? Like it's still an amazing feat. And yet you still feel like you're not doing enough. And I think everyone feels that because you see all these successful people doing these crazy things and you just don't see the day to day that maybe they, you know, binged watch Netflix on the couch the other day. You just never see that kind of stuff. So you don't think it's you feel bad when you do it yourself. But everyone does like, you know, resetting things and relaxing things. Yeah. Maybe a deeper philosophical question here is. What, what, what do you think about human like psychology and why do we yearn so much for success? Um, I feel like, you know, it's a natural thing that all of us kind of want to achieve, but what, what do you feel like deep down makes us go after success so hard, um, and then make those comparisons to other people? It's a big question. (laughs) Oh, I, I think it's so tough. Um, I've actually thought about this. I, uh, I study a little bit of philosophy in school, and I've always been wondering about maybe where my desire to do stuff comes from, because sometimes I want to do something. I'm like, why do I want to do it? Um, and maybe this is my theory, and I can only speak for myself, but I think people, like human beings, are trying to find purpose, right? And doing something and success kind of feels like purpose. It really isn't a true purpose because you're just getting external validation, um, and I've struggled with, the, with this myself because I'm the kind of person who likes to be, you know, here, good job, or, you know, likes to get an applause from an audience. And um, I think it feels like purpose, like you're doing something right when uh, the external world is validating everything you're doing. So that's why being a successful you know, businessman or being a top athlete feels great. And it's awesome. Like, I think everyone should do what they want to do. But maybe that's part of it is that we want to find something that makes us feel like we're purposeful in the world. And that is one way to do it. Yeah. And maybe an extension to that is, do you feel like going after success so hard also takes away from happiness? Um, Ooh. Yeah. I haven't thought about that. I think happiness is so fickle. Like we all want to, we all want to be happy. Um, yeah. And people say that they everyone. just want to be happy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think happiness as a goal is the best thing to set. Because your happiness, you can be happy when you wake up and sad when you go to bed. And that's a day-to-day thing. Um, So, you know, achieving happiness, I I think it's more like fulfillment or um, impact or whatever other metric you set might be a better better thing to do because your your achievement can bring you happiness, but it's also going to make you super sad sometimes because you don't achieve it that day. And um, I don't know how you feel about happiness, but that's how I kind of approach it. Like it feels good to be happy, but it's also not the the goal. Yeah, for me, I thought uh, for a long time, I thought happiness was just a feeling that, you know, you just have, right? Just living and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I started going deep dive, maybe in a rabbit hole of reading a few books on, you know, what their thoughts are, like a lot of phys- philosophical people. And, uh, you know, I came across a book by Naval. Um, a lot of people are very familiar with his kind of work and stuff like that. And how he kind of thinks of uh, happiness is basically a construct of the activities that you kind of do on a day-to-day basis that provide. um, So he basically said, if you're in a moment in time where you don't feel like you're actually working or, you know, you're just doing these activities to kind of fulfill uh, yourself, 
that those are the activities that are going to lead to eventual happiness. Happiness is not a feeling. It's more of a, I guess, I don't know what the word is, uh, maybe a construct of what or an outcome of your kind of day-to-day experiences. And so if you live freely in that sense, I guess that's kind of where your happiness comes from. So if you're kind of going and only searching for happiness, like you mentioned, I don't think that can be achieved. Like if that's your goal, just to be happy and it's not going to happen because you're going to do the wrong things or you take the wrong way and pathway. Um, So, you know, it's an interesting question. I don't think anyone really has a true answer to it. Um, And again, it's unique to everyone else. Like people perceive happiness in different ways. So it's a very deep question, but I thought I'd ask you uh, what your thoughts on that was. Yeah, it's you're asking the tough questions, which I like. I like to, you know, scheme on the the questions of life, but you know, we're never really going to know the answers. So yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so let's get into obviously you're building a webacy, which is a really interesting platform um, that is now securing one's digital assets uh, and enables one, you know, to make and manage distributions upon one's death or, you know, in between. So, you know, talk to us where the problem kind of came about when you're, you know, exploring the idea and maybe walk us through your personal story because you've mentioned that you've also been scammed in crypto twice. Yeah. Uh, So the original inception for Webacy, um, it was kind of like what happens to your crypto when you die. And we've, we've, we've changed our positioning on that because it's so much more than just death. There's like all kinds of things that you want to protect your digital assets for, but the story behind it's not a fun one. Uh, unfortunately, my cousin passed away uh, during the pandemic, and uh, it was not due to COVID, but it was due to he was kind of an extreme sports guy. And my co-founder had a very similar story with his best friend's sister. And we've uh, my co-founder and I have been friends for like five, six years at this point. So we were talking about it, and we realized that there's this entire new asset class that we don't know how to manage. Um, particularly, you know, we started with when someone dies, so that's where we started. But when someone passes away, what happens to your digital assets? So we thought we thought about social media first, actually. So we, you know, when someone passes away on social media, the way we grieve has completely changed. Because first of all, our network has grown so much that you know about someone passing that you might never have known before social media existed, like someone across the country that you mu- once met has passed away and you now know about that. And then these these social, these walls become these um, places where people post and post memories and these accounts, if they stay up, become kind of ghostly, right? They remind you of this person's um, existence and it's just changed our psyche and the way we grieve and manage life and death as people. So we were interested in this philosophical concept, but then we also realized that um, digital assets are actually worth something. So whether it is social media, whether it's crypto, very importantly, as we've seen like the rise and fall of the crypto boom, it's kind of now a really core part of our everyday lives. And so uh, we started looking at uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and crypto as well. And we thought, you know, what are the options for people? Because it's a very self-custody like item that you own yourself and people don't know how to do, do like to, how to deal with it. So that's how Webacy was originally born. Um, and then we started diving into the world of blockchain and everything. And that's when I personally got scammed. So as a new user, like I only really got into crypto in 2021 uh, through all of this. Um, and I was starting to get into NFTs, learning about the entire ecosystem of the metaverse and uh, exchanges, DeFi, all of the stuff. It's so big. Um, and I joined a few Discord channels. I think this is everyone's story and everyone has probably like fell for a scam or thought about falling for a scam at some point. So I, I don't think I'm alone. It is a little embarrassing. Um, but I was part of a project discord that was launching soon. And I think the timing of it and the excitement of it, some random person posed as a, like as the channel, um, as the channel moderator and then DM'd me and was like, Hey, you got chosen for an early mint. And I was like, so excited. And I clicked in and my money was gone. And luckily it was not like a big hit, but it happened again because I was just silly and didn't even, you know, do the checks and do the right thing. Um, and at the, that point, I just felt really embarrassed and really bad because it, it's something that you don't feel like you should fall for. Because I'm like, oh, I'm smart. I'm never never going to you know, fall for this kind of thing. But we hear about scams and um, breaches and hacks every day. And sometimes it's the user's fault. Sometimes it's not. Um, and so we, we knew that there was a bigger problem than just, you know, when you die. So we've kind of changed the Webacy goal to be more about managing your digital assets for the unexpected, right? And that can be loss of access, that can be hacks, of course, it's still if you pass away unexpectedly or plan, you know, so um, there's a there's a lot that goes into the product, but I think we're solving a problem that 
number one definitely needs to be solved. And number two will hopefully improve the lives of people online and the safety online as well. Yeah, I think there's a growing concern, uh, especially with NFTs coming about and how many rug pulls there's been. Uh, it's, it's, it's getting scary because uh, a lot of, you know, individuals are in, uh, uninformed about the space and they maybe see this as an asset class to maybe get rich in and they take advantage of that psychology and uh, that's where scammers come in. Right. So it's, uh, it's, I, I guess what you're addressing is really important. Um, other than maybe like the scamming side of things or maybe the risks around crypto related to that. What do you foresee as, you know, some of the challenges that are going to continue to, you know, exist um, as we want adoption to grow? I think one of the biggest challenges will probably be, um, well, one of them obviously is like government, right? So this year we're seeing the first like real round of crypto taxes and people don't know how to, how to manage that. I am personally struggling with like finding resources about what to do, uh, whether you have to, that kind of, all of these questions, yeah. right? Um, but then it's going to come to government regulation, right? And like the government, whatever, whenever you're doing, like this is the whole reason why like crypto and decentralization came about was to kind of circumvent the, the processes and the unfairness, the perceived unfairness that people have when it comes to government. And I only know like the US government. The, I, don't, I can't speak for the rest of the world because mm. I, I do not have enough information, but I think they're going to try to regulate it. They're going to try to have a hand in it, whether it's taxes, whether it's whatever. Um, and that's going to, that's just like directly combative of the mindset of the whole way the blockchain works. So we'll, we'll see how that happens. I think that's one big challenge. And then, um, I mean, you, you touched on it again. Again, the second thing is that uh, security and how do we protect users? Um, how do you protect yourself? How do you deal with your own things? And there's, it's, we're still so early, right? Like crypto has been around for like a tiny bit of time, whereas our banks, our national banks yeah. have been around for like hundreds of years, right? And so it's, it's an exciting time. It's like the gold rush. Uh, and we feel like we're building picks and shovels, but it's also a very frothy, like kind of drunken time. And it's maybe time to bring some like sobriety back to the world. Yeah. And um, just uh, on your first thought there, uh, I remember we had Ben on our podcast who's you went to school with. Um, and so it's uh, he, he mentioned like, you know, we asked him the same question. What are your thoughts on regulation? Because, you know, there's often a disconnect of, you know, the core believers of like blockchain technology and making sure, you know, where it's not influenced by regulation, it's supposed to be deregulated and all that stuff. That's kind of a core tenant of, I guess, the whole space. But he also said, because of that, there's a lot of risk where, you know, individuals are going to get taken advantage of. And there's a lot of other things. So he almost had a philosophy of, you know, there should be some levels and some protection uh, or regulation um, as time goes by, similar to, you know, how stock markets operate and stuff, stuff like that, maybe not to that extent, but it's interesting to see how, you know, some people view deregulation as being advantageous or regulation as being, you know, dis uh, a disadvantage if you're in an, uh, working in um, a certain industry. Um, so, you know, it, it's give or take, I guess, that there's always going to be those kind of colliding viewpoints within the space. Uh, but I guess at certain point in time, when there's money involved, the government's definitely going to get its <laughs> feet wet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the it's an interesting time. I'm very glad to be alive today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot of new technology. So, um, you know, you're an early stage um, startup entrepreneur, and you know, one of the things that is critical uh, to the success of your company is having a strong team. Um, you know, so I'd love your definition first off of you know we talked about culture, but maybe culture in the sense of a company um, and maybe how you apply some of those morals and values that you have as a reflection of what you're building. Yeah, I think culture is such an important part of a company. And like, to be honest, this is the first time that I've been in this leader leadership position with other people where I feel like it is very much on me and my co-founder to create the company culture. And we're still so small, right? That it's still mm -hmm. developing. Um, my previous experience has been at startups, which had all excellent culture, and then Microsoft, which is a big tech company, which is totally different from the startup life, yeah. right? And I think through all these experiences, I have pulled things that I like, don't like, um, especially like from Microsoft, I learned a lot of things that I do like, and then some things that don't quite work. And we're not at that scale, of course, but eventually, you know, we hope to. So I'm trying to pull those lessons in. Um, and then I, I think that the like you know future of work conversations are interesting nowadays because we're all online and that's the new normal and that's probably what it's going to be as we continue. 
Um, so how do we develop a team culture when everyone is remote? So that's one thing is that I've only met in person, like three of the team members on my team and we mm-hmm. have around seven. We have five yeah. full time and a few contractors that I don't know if I'll ever meet them. Right. Because first of all, we're living in this COVID world, which the restrictions change all the time. I can barely go back to Tokyo. Um, but also I want everyone to enjoy their life. Right. So yeah. I want people to have a good work life balance, but we're also startups. So we need people to kind of be available if something breaks yeah. or, um, all these things. So I'm trying to find that balance between being a good leader and like pushing our company forward while also I really, really, um, I think that personal time and personal happiness when it comes to work too is really important. So I try to check in with them and be like, is this work interesting to you? <laughs> Do you want to work on something else? That kind of yeah. thing. Um, and I just, I'm learning a lot. And I think some of like the mentorship I've had and my co-founder is an incredible mentor as well. Yeah. Um, is great, but I, I have a lot to learn. That's just <laughs> kind of point blank. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, being available and having, or having interest in the project and having balance. I was watching, uh, I just started like the dropout, which is uh, like a series on Elizabeth Holmes. It's a great I guess the series, first or yeah. second episode, something along those lines, I guess the, I think he was a lead engineer or something like that. Uh, his kid or had a birthday party or something. And they were doing a demo for in Switzerland or something like that. And uh, she gives him a call in the middle of the day saying, shit's broken, like fix it or help us. And he's like, Mm -hmm. he's kind of like in his head debating, like I'm losing my chance to kind of be with my kids versus, you know, the startup. Um, And I feel like, you know, those are kind of the experiences where a lot of individuals say like, where's the work-life balance in that case wasn't the greatest kind of experience where the individual had to set through, I don't know, God knows 10 hours of experiments and stuff like that, re-engineering the entire product. So uh, yeah, it's good that you're obviously having uh, intentional kind of uh, impact in the sense that, you know, we have to view individuals as a person and they have a life outside of say working with me, but also as a startup, there is a expectation almost, you know, there it's hard. It's a, it's a business. We had to build it out. So being available is also very important. Yeah, absolutely. And you know this just as well, because you're doing all of your own things. And um, I think that people actually do better work and are more motivated when they feel happy and balanced yes. and taken care of too, right? So yeah, 100%. That, I'm trying to achieve that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'd love to kind of maybe go explore the backstory of how you met your co-founding team. And mm-hmm. what, are, what, what traits kind of um, gravitated uh, you towards them in the sense that, yeah, we would be a good fit. And, uh, you know, the idea that I'm pitching or we're building out makes sense. Like we're all complementary to each other. Yeah. Uh, so I think the first obvious place to start is with my co-founder. So like I mentioned, we've been friends for a while now. We actually met in Tokyo. He is a previous founder. So that's one mm-hmm. huge thing that I felt kind of safe with. Um, I'm a little bit risk averse when it comes to like, um, like personal like finance and being able to yeah. support myself because I've always wanted to like be independent from a very young age. And so I was at Microsoft, very stable job. And the, I think one of the big reasons I decided to leave was because my co-founder was so exceptional. Mm. Uh, so he's a previous founder. He ran his own company for like 10 years, um, has a lot of great experience, has a lot of good mentors and a good network, which he has now shared with me and I'm so grateful for. Um, but in the day-to-day, like I lean on him for things like how do you set up a company or in this situation when we're signing contracts, is this okay? You know, I don't mm-hmm. know some of these things. And when it comes to fundraising, all of the, that. So I feel so lucky on that sense. Uh, when it comes to a skill set sense, I think we're actually very complementary. So I'm a technical founder. He's more on uh, biz dev, like network uh, partnerships, all of the things that I don't know how to do. So yeah. I'm learning from him, uh, but also we we are very good at dividing conquering. Uh, and now we've built out an incredible team, which I'm I feel very good about, uh, and I am learning from every single day. So our lead engineer, he's he previously worked with my co-founder. Yeah. And so that's how we pulled it in. I think some of the best hires you make are either people you've worked with previously or like, you know, referrals. I think everyone knows that that's, that's usually how it works. Yeah. But um, I've learned a lot from him uh, as like a engineering manager um, and how to do code the right way and like not to get too nerdy, but like his code reviews are so good and yeah, he catches okay. things and has tips that I've never thought about before. So like he's incredible. Um, and then our designer I've actually just been friends with. And that was a little bit of a serendipitous moment where I, mm-hmm. I took her to meet my co-founder uh, at like a little social gathering. And he was like, oh, why don't why doesn't she just work for us and design for us? I'm like, oh, I never really thought about that. So that's been great. Uh, and then we recently hired another person who uh, I think is going to be really great too. 
Awesome. Yeah. I always think like, you know, teams are first established through trust um, and trust comes through existing relationships. And, you know, you had, you know, that interaction with him in Japan and, you know, it just kind of worked out because, you know, you had those skill sets and, you know, you gravitated towards the existing skill sets he might have had. And it was a good idea. I, I love what you guys are also building out. So, you know, it's important that you saw that kind of critical future of the business. So uh, the other thing maybe that a lot of founders do not talk about is disagreements. And, you know, those happen in normal life and also in business oftentimes. So what is your approach in terms of, you know, going into a disagreement of, you know, having different philosophies of, you know, this is where I want, we, we should take it, or this is where we should take the business. And how do you make those out or those discussions productive and have positive outcomes? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's actually, it reminds me of a funny time that we were on a partner meeting with a potential investor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they asked us, you know, tell us like about a time that you argued or disagreed and why did, what was it about? How did you resolve it? And we looked at each other, of course, we're on screen. So we looked at each other's screen and, um, we, we haven't actually fought or disagreed about the company. And I think that's a, that's not to say that we haven't had differing opinions. Um, but I, I think we both do a good job of, um, kind of like sharing our reasoning behind things and also being really open-minded, right? So if someone has a really strong opinion on something, there's probably a reason why. And we both respect each other enough to listen and maybe change our opinion on it too, or realize that maybe our opinion isn't strong enough to like, uh, to compare against theirs. So we should go with theirs, you know, and, and see how it goes. Right. Uh, we do have, um, a little bit of a differing opinion or not opinion, but maybe experience level when it comes to, um, like sacrifice and the, the way you approach, uh, how to like run a company. Right. Cause this is of course my first time and he has his ideas of how to run a company, which is great. Um, so like for me personally, I'm a little bit type A. So when it comes to like, if I, if there's a detail that has kind of come up a few times and we haven't figured it out, I, I start to get a little frustrated. Um, and the other day on a call, he, he kind of just point blank told me that I wasn't like, I wasn't very great to talk to at that moment and that he would prefer that I like change like the way I was speaking if we were going to continue that conversation. Right. And I appreciate that kind of thing. Cause that like, it's not rude in, or anyway, or in any sense, but I was definitely in a mindset where I was not being, um, I was not being a great partner at that moment. And then I think that his, um, his responsibility and his ability to um, be calm and cool and collected, uh, whether that's built from experience or he is just that way is um, really calm me down in that moment. And I realized that I have a lot of work to do in that sense. Cause I want to be a leader like that too. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm again, rambling at this point. Cause I really, I really um, look up to him and I think it's a great partnership and he's taught me a lot. So that's, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Communication is a skill. I feel like it's a lifelong journey. It's yeah. uh, you won't learn it day one. And trust me, like if you compare it just like from a podcasting standpoint, I know it's not like entrepreneurship and stuff like that. But um, our first interview compared to where we're at now, we just started understanding what people enjoy talking about and the conversations that they talk about. So communication is definitely reps and experience. So, you know, I love how you've taken that feedback and kind of mold it in a way where it's, you know, it's critical feedback, but I need to use it in a way where if I have future conversations with maybe similar type individuals or similar type personalities, I know exactly how to kind of go after that and address or communicate with that individual. So that's very powerful. And I love that you're kind of taking a proactive approach around that. Yeah, thank you. And um, like, just like you mentioned with your co-founder as well, I'm sure there's communication that you guys have probably really figured out along the way. And that's, I'm looking forward to doing that with not only my co-founder, but also my team and then the rest of the world. Cause the part of being a startup is you have to communicate what you're doing and that's exactly. what we're working on. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And then, so maybe just to round up the podcast, I'd love to understand maybe the best piece of advice you can provide to a new entrepreneur um, and kind of maybe the first thing that they should consider when building a company. Ooh. Best piece of advice. I think I have one. Um, this is more for me, maybe reminding mm-hmm. myself, but maybe it'll be helpful for anyone who's listening. But I think when you are an entrepreneur, there's a lot of things you quote unquote have to do. And I think it's important to check in and make sure that the tasks you're spending your time and attention on are going to get you one step closer to where you want to be. So sometimes I find myself doing things that Maybe I don't need to be spending my time on this, but you think that you know you're, you're busy yourself and you do sing things that feel productive. Um, 
it could be just a personality trait, but yeah. checking in and making sure that the the hours of my day are actually moving the needle forward when it comes yeah. to the company. That's one big thing that I think founders can focus on. Sweet. No, I totally agree with that. I think prioritization, it's, uh, again, something you learn over time and hopefully you can, uh, early on, you have a framework that allows you to achieve that. So, uh, love that. So, um, yeah, that's a bulk of the podcast. So, uh, you know, one thing we always love doing at the end of the podcast is a bit of a lightning round just to understand you a bit even better. So, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you a few questions and, you know, just think of the first thing that comes to your mind uh, when I ask a question. Sure. Awesome. So the first question is, what's your favorite book of all time? Favorite book? Um I'm the type that maybe thinks the current book I'm reading is my favorite book, but if I have yeah. to pick one, um, this is going to out me as a very basic like Silicon Valley <laughs> tech girl, but I, I like stoicism. So I think the one that stuck okay. with me was uh, How to Think Like an o- Roman Emperor by, oh, what is the author's name? Um, I think I actually have it in my bookshelf. The Donald Robertson. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah, the first time I've heard of that, so definitely take a look. It's a good um, what company outside of Webacy are you most excited about? Ooh, so many. Um, does an NGO count? Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I have some friends that have run this amazing nonprofit called Bean Voyage. And so first okay. of all, I'm a huge coffee fan. I think a lot yeah. of people like coffee. Uh, and they are eradicating the gender disparity between like coffee farmers in Latin American countries. So they're currently mm-hmm. in Costa Rica, but they're expanding and they are providing educational resources to women and their families and smallholder coffee producers to help them make more money so that there's less of a less of a gap when it comes to like farming, first of yeah. all, when it comes to commodity and gender. No, oh, that's awesome. I'd love to kind of explore that too. Um, if you were to have a dinner with one person in any point in time, who would that be? Honestly, it'd probably be my father. Um, mm. I have not seen him in a while. Well, actually, I just recently saw him because I yeah. went to Minnesota, but he lives in Tokyo and okay. I haven't really seen him very often for the last two years. And um, I would just love to spend more time with him. Oh, uh, we love the sentimental answers as well. Um, and the last question we usually save for last is, uh, you know, controversial in that sense, but do you like pineapple on your pizza? Oh, yes. Okay. That's yes. where we have a disagreement. You don't? So, you got to live a little. What's what's wrong with pineapple? I don't know. I just find like fruit doesn't belong, but we can get into that whole rabbit hole of tomatoes and fruit as well. But yeah, Micah, this was fun. Uh, love the experience. Love learning your story and what you're building. Um, you know, where can we find you and uh, maybe last uh, thoughts that you might have? Yeah. So me personally, um, most of my social handles, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn is Micah Isogawa. So at Micah Isogawa. Uh, and then Webacy is at my Webacy on most social platforms. So that's where you can find me. 